Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 4th and 5th of December 2020. In this case study of 2020 box office hit Savage, writer and director Sam Kelly and producer Vicky Pope share what they learned from the unforeseen pitfalls and breakthroughs while bringing to life this ambitious feature film. Um, I'll share my journey, which will probably feel familiar to, to, to some of you. Um, when, I was, when I was 23, I'd self-funded a, a 5K short film, so my goal was to make a film commission short by 25 and then a feature by 28, my second feature by 32. Easy. So I worked with multiple writers to develop multiple short film scripts and applied for funding for each of them. All declined, so fair enough. I self-funded my next short too for 20K, as you do, and it was a decent film, so I hoped um, I might get funding for the next uh, application. Nope. Uh, meanwhile, I had some decent success at the 48-hour uh, film festival and kept developing different scripts with different writers. 17 applications over six years, all unsuccessful. Um, probably time to give up. Um, but my 18th short film application got through, just. Thank God for Juliet Weber. And I received short, uh, Fresh Shorts funding and made Lambs, which was uh, successful at film festivals. Uh, I started writing features full-time. I wrote five drafts of the first script, which uh, partially took place in a, in a gang world, um, which took three years. And then I was convinced to go in another direction, so I wrote another five drafts of a different script, uh, which fully took place in the gang world and took another couple of years. And I thought it was strong, um, but I got turned down for development funding. And uh, this point hit me quite hard. Um, I'd invested 15 years in my career at this point, and I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. I'd sort of, I, lost, I lost hope, and um, to be honest, not just for filmmaking. Um, and I guess I'm sharing all this because we hear a lot about people's successes and not as much about the failing, the failing part. And I, I bet I'm not the only one in, in this room who's, who's felt like you're uh, outside of the system. Um, yeah, or like um, maybe no one believes in you or maybe you don't have what it takes. Um, like maybe you should give up and take up some other career, which makes a lot more sense. Like, you, you know, mum wants you to. <laughs> nah, she doesn't. She's, she loves it. <laughs> um, you need to be vulnerable to create art, but that vulnerability can also affect us. I really value my filmmaker friends and this community here because of that implicit understanding of that struggle. And the fact that all you guys are filmmakers, despite all the odds, I find incredibly inspiring. Those that face failure after failure and still chase getting the next project up, you're not doing it for the money. That's obvious. So why are you doing it? Maybe you don't know, um, and it doesn't really matter if you do or not. Um, I'm working out that I'm making films because I'm a dreamer. I live in my own head, envisaging worlds and stories, and try to make those dreams real. And because when I look back on my deathbed, I want to feel like I took that swing. <laughs> yeah. So the first draft of Savage emerged from that darkness, and... It sounds strange to say about a film set in the gang world, but it felt like a deeply personal film. It was about a man who was lost, who felt isolated and wanted to find love and belonging. I called it, uh, it's pretty intense, but I called it my masculine primal scream. Um, Damage felt a sense of self-disgust and shame with who he was. He feared that if people saw him for who he truly was, they would reject him. So he didn't allow others to see who he was. His mask was inside. And I, I hoped that by writing this down and, and, and making it, it might, uh, that sentiment might connect with someone who's watching and who has that experience that they maybe feel they don't belong anywhere or struggle to find love in their life. And I guess I hope that by being honest about that, um, they'd feel less alone, less alien with their journey because they'll recognise themselves in there, in that material and... and, and that might give them hope. We're only just getting started. Um, kia ora koutou. it's really nice to be here. Um, it's, it's funny to think, uh, to finally be at a stage where we can separate ourselves from our film a, a wee bit and look back at what we've made. 
Um, a key theme um, for Sam talking about um, this session today that's kept coming up in conversation was the idea of empathy. And I've got a short clip about empathy um, from an animator, an amazing animator illustrator, Katie Ross, and it's an RSA short that they're going to play for us now. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least I had a yeah and we do it all the time because you know what someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Um, so, so I've spent 15 years making films now and over that time, you start to see patterns in the choices that you've made thematically across the body of work that you've produced. My first uh, funded short film was a film called The Graffiti of Mr. Tupai, and Chris Dudman is here today, um, who I made that with, and um, that had a tagline um, that we discussed that was only connect. And my last feature film uh, was a documentary called Gardening with Soul, and that was about compassion, amongst other things. Um, and Savage is a film that has empathy as its co-papa. So all these, these, all, they, all, they all have ideas of connection and empathy at their heart. I'd like to think that's some kind of reflection of my character, but actually I think empathy is at the core of um, what most of us do with our films. We try and connect hearts and minds. The best cinema creates the space for audiences to laugh and cry and put themselves in someone else's shoes. And it's been amazing being here at the conference this weekend, hearing so many other people talk about their work on, on those terms. Um, Cole spoke beautifully about mirrors yesterday, and, and I spotted this quote from Inaritu too. I, think, I mean, I think it's a statement you can interpret in so many different ways. It's about the audience seeing a reflection of themselves on screen. It's our culture, our politics, our people, society captured up large for us to scrutinise. But it's also about us as filmmakers too. The films that we choose to make, the stories we want to tell reflect who we are, our value systems and the legacy we want to leave behind in this life. With a film like Savage, that value system needed to be really well defined and it's something that we talked about all along the way. Sam was really grounded in what he was doing and why and why, and I also needed to find my own place with it too and be clear about my own relationship with it all. Our touchstone was always about empathy and understanding and the responsibility to the men who shared their stories with us. And this defined our, our approach to the whole process. At times it was a really conscious thing and at others, other times it was implicit, almost subconscious, that came from both of our understanding of, of this idea of empathy. So uh, I grew up and went to school in uh, Porirua where, uh, can you hear me right? Where uh, Savage was shot. Um, in 2007, uh, my friend's younger brother, Fitz Rosati, uh, was murdered in Porirua. Fitz was one of the loveliest guys you could meet. 
I even cast him in the school play Guys and Dolls as the character, nicely, nicely. Uh, young mongrel mob member Charlie Karaka had been beaten up earlier in the day by a group and had his patch taken off him, which is the most humili humiliating thing you can do to a, a gang member. And he was driving around uh, Porirua looking for uh, revenge and identified the wrong guy, Fitz, standing at a bus stop on his 21st birthday on his way into town to celebrate, and uh, got out of the car and, and, and took Fitz's life. Um, that event hit me uh, emotionally. It, it, um, it made me angry at gang members, um, and it made me question why young people would even want to join gangs. Um, and I didn't like those feelings. Um, I spent time with at-risk youth and their program leaders understand, under, trying to understand the forces that pushed and pulled these young uh, juvenile delinquents, essentially, to where they were. I went on tramps into the bush with them for days, um, hung out with Crips in their homes, um, doing spots and holding a camera. It's a little bit weird. But... Um, and observe the way these programs and the, uh, the inspiring leaders um, that ran them altered the direction of these young men's lives. Yet these incredible programs um, were struggling for public and private financing to survive. And it, you know, I'd, I'd see them trying to you know, fundraise on a daily basis and yet on the other hand see this incredible impact they were making. Um, and yeah, I, I, found, I found it, uh, I, it was sort of felt like it was out of sight, out of mind for politicians and for the public too. Um, and I found that incredibly frustrating as each, each of these altered lives had huge ramifications, not only for that individual involved, but also for the community. In one direction, there was this life of crime and harm and, and, and the other was someone contributing to their family and to the community. So I wanted to shine a light on the urgency of that survival situation that many of these at-risk youth were in and made a short film called Lambs. And I also spent time with adult gang members hearing their stories from boyhood and was struck by how many of these men had been abused by uh, their family and in boys' homes and how affecting that was for them. Uh, many of them had a clear sense of how much their time in state care had shaped their lives. The, the abuse of trust of adults, um, authority figures, the way trauma at an early age uh, rewires their brain. Uh, some complained to a housemaster or to nurse or to the police, and uh, the response was often children should be seen and not heard. Uh, they, or, or some, not exactly that response, it's a bit weird of all of them, but you know. Um, they, they learned the world didn't care about them. They're on their own. And I was also struck by how little New Zealanders seem to know about the extent of this and, and how much, how many uh, judged gang members for their life choices without really seeing the complexity of forces that pushed and pulled the gang members to the point that they were. So my instinct uh, for the co-papa of Savage was to allow audiences to walk in the shoes of a gang member, to not only understand at a rational level uh, how they got there, but more importantly, to feel it. This emotional understanding is more powerful and transformative to audiences uh, than just cold knowledge. And as Vicky said, uh, this ability to uh, feel and to walk in shoes speaks to the unique strength and power of cinema. Um, so I've, I've recently read um, Kama Maria Mercado's book, In the Dream House, um, where she talks about her experience in an abusive lesbian relationship. She talks about the um, concept of archival silence, uh, which are the stories that are destroyed. It's quite, a, it's, it's quite a big concept, but it's what the stories that are destroyed or never recorded or uttered in the first place because they're not valued or deemed irrelevant or unimportant at the time. Carmen talks about the idea of power in the, in the word archive. Um, with an archive comes an archivist, and that person or entity curates or decides what belongs there, and as importantly, what doesn't. Um, that's true, for example, if it's, if it's a parent deciding uh, what to record of a child's life, but I think it can also be applied to a filmmaker or a funding agency making a choice about what story to tell. 
So every time we, as, and all the decision makers that help finance a project, commit to make or even develop a film, we're becoming part of an archival process. And I would argue that's the case if, if it's a story like Savage that reflects our own history, or a comedy that seeks to entertain, or even a horror. All these films contain within them a set of characters, stories, perspectives, values, language that play a role in reflecting ourselves on screen. And you, you have to recognise that no matter what, there are massive gaps in our collective histories. And um, I sort of want to talk about Cummins' book because it, 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 was, it just seems so pertinent and it, it, I sort of felt like I want to share this with everybody. Um, so in her book, she's, she's looking at archival silence from her perspective as a survivor of an abusive lesbian relationship. And amongst many other insights, she looks at how the silence of, arch of the archive, of the stories and documentation of this particular experience, fails to provide any context for women caught in these relationships. So their experience in, a, in an abusive relationship isn't validated anywhere else, and it effectively silences them from speaking out. And she talks about the extraordinary pressure of being part of a minority group which has had to fight for recognition and identity. How when that identity hasn't been given the space to express itself in all its many, many and varied forms, it ends up being defined in the public's eye by the stories of a few. And that creates stereotypes, and those stereotypes are really hard to shake off. She also talks about uh, how this archival silence ultimately trans translates, and I, th I found this particularly shocking, it translates to the legal system. So where the legal system literally can't cope with the concept of abusive lesbian relationships because the legal definitions of abuse have been defined as only existing in heterosexual male and female relationships. So the, the point, I guess, is that in the end, these archival gaps are gaps where people never see themselves or find information about themselves. They're holes that make it impossible to understand our context or relate to each other. So our film, uh, Savage, connects directly to experiences of men in abusive state institutes and the formative experiences there that led them towards gang life. This is currently being investigated by the Royal, via the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and State Care. And, you know, the first thing that they've done in that inquiry, interestingly, is tried to engage with survivors and then tried to support them to document their stories, to try and begin to fill the process of filling in the gaps in our archive that exists for these men. So this concept of archival silence strikes me as being deeply connected to our own wrestle um, with our, our colonial history, representation and diversity in this industry. If those diverse voices aren't present in our systems, our processes, our decision makers, our investors, our filmmakers, our storytellers, then those holes in the, in the archives will be chasms that are never filled. So in that case, you kind of have to go, well, how are we ever going to really understand who we are, how we came to be, and who we can become, ultimately? So when you think about us, I think, when you think about us, our role as storytellers in this context, um, it provides a whole other, uh, other level of importance to what we do. And, you know, Susie Wiles spoke to that, um, you know, when she asked us yesterday to create scientist characters who don't conform to stereotypes, so that her work in the real world isn't undermined by the mere fact that she's expressing her own individuality and bending those stereotypes herself. And Sebastian's Lelo's film, A Fantastic Woman, which was an amazing session, um, it transformed his country's understanding of transgen transgender experience, or at least began the conversation around that. So I think ultimately it, it, it keeps coming back to this question that we wrestled with in Savage, the question of, of how we can empathise and understand each other. So um, creating a believable gang world on screen was critical for me. The depictions of gang members that I didn't like treated them as these cool, hard men unaffected by emotions. Uh, and these, these stereotypes didn't match the gang members that I knew in the, in the stories that they told me. Humans who were affected by emotions. Um, it started at a script level. So Savage wasn't a crime drama. It was about capturing Danny's interior life, um, which was inspired by the stories I was told. So the stakes weren't robbing a bank, uh, or those sort of at a physical level, it was that Danny's heart and soul. 
An important principle for me was that every action would have an emotional reaction. For example, what, what impact does violence have on the man committing the violence? Anyone who's had a fight here, um, my last one's been a long while, probably a teenager, um, knows that uh, violence is all emotion. Before the fight, during the fight, and after the fight, yet we almost never see that in Hollywood. It's a man shooting a gun, coolly blowing the smoke away and walking away. I wanted to situate my film in an emotional reality, which is a world where people can really get hurt, or can really hurt. In casting, I wanted to find as many people who knew the game world as possible. I didn't want my gang to feel like a group of thespians wearing leather jackets. <laughs> the norm for gang members in the 80s was a heavy set build, so I knew I generally needed size. But more than that, there's an unquantifiable demeanor from those that have experience in their world that they naturally bring. And one of the challenges for actors playing gang members is an insecurity that they aren't hard enough. So they'll push at that hardness to convince us, which uh, overrides the actual emotions that are scripted for the scene and becomes this one-dimensional note or flavor for the scene. Whereas someone with experience in the gang world will, won't push at that hardness at all, because they don't feel any need to, and they can simply sit in whatever emotions are present in the, screen, in the, in the scene. That's beautiful. Our initial casting call on Facebook attempted to create a feeling of permission, saying, scars, tats, missing teeth, criminal records, welcome. It went viral, and we got 8,000 applications from around New Zealand, and uh, we invited 2,000 to audition. Um, I have a strong relationship of mutual trust and respect with casting director uh, Yvette Reid, who was formerly my real-life partner, um, which is, you know, sometimes fun and sometimes not when you're working together. Um, but it was a long time ago, so it's all good now. Um, she cast my short film Lambs and has since cast a lot of New Zealand's films. Um, we toured the country together, working in parallel rooms and casting all day long. Um, and I absolutely love uh, working with performance and loved this process of connecting with these guys and trying to help them find vulnerability and personal connection. I hugely appreciated their bravery as they didn't know what they were stepping into. Um, you know, they didn't know whether we were, I was going to be Simon Cowell, you know, ripping them. Um, but I made sure that each person left feeling positive. From this process, we found many gems, many beautiful listeners, where we found many of our supporting cast and all of our gang extras. And many of these gang extras had actually given really good um, performances, strong performances, and been called back for main roles. So what it meant was, during the shoot, the quality of performance from the whole Savage gang was always at a really high level, which had a huge impact on its feeling of believability. I tried really hard to find damage from the community, and also any New Zealand actor I thought possible. I initially rejected the idea of auditioning in Australia, but opened it up to the possibility as I got more desperate. Um, Jake Ryan was an immediate standout, a former, a former champion kickboxer with darkness, intensity, and a huge heart. But that created the challenge of connecting Jake to our culture and to the men who the story represented. So I took Jake to hang out with a mongrel mob for the night. Uh, I got him to walk around a local mall in his full facial tattoo, following behind him witnessing the fast-changing behavior of approaching groups of males. Um, but it was, the, the isolation, uh, it was the isolation and judgment of his identity during that exercise um, that, that Jake acutely felt. Former Black Power member and incredible actor Wayne Huppy was critical to this project as an advisor, helping the way Jake moved and talked, along with helping me build an authentic gang world. On set, it was really important for me to anchor each actor in a personal truth, no matter what the scene was. This involved building trust and rehearsal and opening up to incidents in our own lives to find honest and personal connections to those feelings. They were a really important resource for us on set. It was also important that I share my own private life stories with actors and we talk through these things, not only to build up trust, so it's not just a one-way relationship, but also to live up to the themes the film's theme of vulnerability. I worked with my wonderful composer in that same way as the actors, challenging him to find the deepest connections to each scene and digging deeper and deeper 
finding the detail to those images and experiences of those past memories. The more specific you relive those experiences, the more present they become, so that the musical or acting performance comes effortlessly from a real space. My belief is, if you're simply imagining the scene as an actor or composer, you push at the emotion, almost to convince others that you feel it. Whereas if you truly feel, feel it, even if you tried not to show it, the emotion can't help but be there in a truthful, unique, and often complex way. The most beautiful performances are when the actors listen to each other with great sensitivity. I also encourage my composer to listen with great sensitivity to the scene, reacting rather than imposing himself. Same with the camera operator in performance scenes. I'm not a fan of the handheld movement where there's an attempt to create energy or impose a feeling of the scene, impose a feeling on the scene, sorry. I love sensitivity and a feeling of dance with the actors, where the actor is leading. I spent a long time researching DOPs for Savage, and across a DOP's reel, you notice commonalities. For instance, how connected they are to actors or whether they prioritize the beauty of the composition. I loved James Brown's organic moodiness, along with his shared impulse to be close to the actors. There were challenges in working with gang members on set. It wasn't always easy to collaborate, uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My advice to anyone wanting to work uh, or cast community or, or gang members is the same advice I have for casting any collaborator, HOD, producer, funder. The most important thing is trust and respect. It's an intuition you need to listen to. I feel like the life journey of a filmmaker is basically thinking you can make something strong and no one believing you. Um, even if you get funding to finally make a feature film, your collaborators mostly suspect you're a first-time filmmaker who's going to fuck it up. Fair enough. Um, and I know, but it can make it challenging to get a vision through. Um, so you need uh, trust and respect. Um, this is another Inanitu quote um, that I think is really true. Um, even though we're, we're 26 years down the track from Lee Tamahori's 1994 film, Once for Warriors, the film still casts a, a, a long shadow. So during the financing of Savage in 2016-2017, it was still the New Zealand reference point for all the international sales agents we encountered in the marketplace overseas. In conversation with potential crew for the film when we approached them in pre-production, it was also raised. And probably most pointedly though, uh, when the film was released, we got it from the New Zealand public on Facebook. Hopefully you might be able to read these. So we just got, there's just like a selection of some of the stuff that popped up on Facebook. Um, uh, in, a, in a conversation, oh sorry, just let me, I've just lost my track there. So, um, so you can see that even uh, 26 years later, a lot of the New Zealand public still remember and connect with their experience uh, watching Lee's film. Once for Warriors Impact definitely provided a context for reflecting on our responsibilities as filmmakers and the potential weight of the work that we were producing. In a conversation I had with Simon Morris last month, he referenced gang stories as being a New Zealand film genre. It's an actual genre that we produce in our country. So those films would include Once for Warriors, The Dark Horse, The Last Saint, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, Broken, Mark II, the TV movie Resolve, and Us for Savage. There's, there's no doubt a few more, but um, it's maybe eight to 10 feature films. We never saw Savage as a genre film. Um, we are, what we only ever saw with it was a, was a human story that needed to be told, a socially important story that offered some context that it seemed to us that lots of New Zealand was missing. But Simon's classification definitely made me stop and think because the word genre automatically implies there are tropes. And with those tropes come expectations of what the film is, who it's about, and its perspective and messages, and the kinds of stories that are going to be told. And before we made Savage, we actually encountered that a lot um, in relation to people's assumptions about what the film would be. Lots of people were surprised that we had a main character who was Pākehā and that the story is not told from a Māori perspective. 
This underlined to me how deeply our films and media headlines become people's truths and their absolutes. We actually haven't had a New Zealand gang film in the, in the past 26 years that hasn't focused on Māori and Pacifica lead characters. And over time, I think that does risk creating a trope and a sense of expectation about who's got a role to play, not only in the stories on screen, and, but an, you know, it risks translating to real life too. A couple of telling moments came for me um, from one of our test screenings and the feedback sessions afterwards where a Māori audience member expressed her relief at not at not being at the film not being centered on an embattled Māori gang character. And closer to our release, I had another conversation with one of the lawyers representing survivors um, in the Royal Commission of Inquiry and State Abuse and Care, who has struggled with wider public understanding and engagement around the inquiry and that part of our history. And for that reason, she was thrilled. She, she literally rang and, and sort of screamed at me down the phone when she saw the trailer about how excited she was about it all because she felt we'd really subverted expectations and used, by using a Pākehā protagonist in a gang story. We've spent a lot of time trying to get this right and, and you never really know until the film is released, um, you know, what you've done in a way um, because it's always the public's response and the conversations that kind of inform that. Um, you've lost objectivity of, on, on your work a long time ago. And, and we knew that we were never going to be able to please everyone. But the kind of feedback that we had from people like that um, meant a lot to us and um, at least gave us some confidence that we'd spoken about it in the right way to some people. Um, and, you know, maybe we'd found a way to bend some people's expectations enough to help them focus on the issues, the abuse, the institutions and negative experiences in childhood that will define a life no matter who you are. Especially heading into the release, um, people expressed reservations about this kind of story being told, about how it might portray New Zealand or New Zealanders negatively and what it might validate or encourage. At its most explicit, uh, this fear expressed itself in some cinema owners who initially refused to program the film because having seen the trailer, they felt it would be too violent, dark and difficult for their audiences. This pushback, particularly from cinemas, um, kind of depressingly raised the question of whether it's even possible to release a film that's difficult or thematically challenging. And it actually made us kind of go, God, does no one want to watch this stuff in cinemas anymore? And that's so worrying when you think about how powerful film can be as a mechanism to talk about issues and connect people with them. It goes back to the emotional connection we've all been talking about during this conference. If, if you're talking about transforming culture, then film's got a part to play. And sometimes it does need to be talking about the tough stuff. It needs to be clever about it, though, to get everybody to come anyway. In the end, we had to engage with so many different people from so many different places. In the, in the, sorry, in the end, we had engagement from so many different people from so many different places, from legal, from government, from social workers, people from the, within the gang community, people impacted by the gang community, and survivors from the boys' homes. In our previous screenings, we had gang members speaking passionately about the association of gangs with violence. We had social work workers talking about pathways in life. We had lawyers who admitted that even though they'd worked in the legal system, this is part of our history that they knew nothing about. And we had mums who had no connection with gang life who cried because they saw the lost little boy in our violent, damaged main character, and they just wanted him to go home to his mum. So more than anything, um, we had people who were surprised about how affected they were, even though damage is a character they presumed they could never understand. And all of this um, was expressed in screeds of emails, online chat and dialogue that we received in response to the film, um, the vast majority of which was positive, some of which was negative, but all of which represented, in the end, a discussion, a wrestle, an acknowledgement of this part of our history. And the good news uh, about those cinemas that I mentioned who initially refused to program the film is that our amazing distributor, Madman, ended up convincing them all to run private preview screenings with invited guests from their communities. And the audiences in those screenings demanded those cinemas program the film. And that's, I think, um, should we give Madman a hand for that? <laughs> because they backed the film and they were bold and they, and they trusted us. Um, and, you know, I think we really owe a, a thanks to both
both those audiences and Madman for helping the film find success. And in the end, it's kind of one of the parts of the film that I'm most proud of, that we got some people thinking and talking about the issues, the stories, the individuals in our history, that we maybe challenged some tropes and maybe provided a bit of the context that was missing from our collective archive. At a recent Q&A, someone asked me, how do you know when to compromise? It's a good question. I want people I'm working with to offer all the ideas they can during scripting, shooting, post. To be close to that wouldn't just be egotistical. It would be missing out on opportunities to make my film better. After their feedback, I like to voice any doubts about their suggestions so that I can I don't privately dismiss it for a bad reason, then take a little private time to entertain it and play it out and think about whether it will make the film better. Whether it does or not is a matter of instinct. And of course, you have to back your instincts. But it's not a spur of the moment instinct. It's a considered, informed instinct. As I mentioned before, you need to find collaborators who trust your instincts too. But that doesn't mean they defer to you. I want to work with artists. And that means they're bringing a unique personal vision of their own to the process. And my job is to make sure their vision is making the film better. I respond to all notes from investors and market partners. Most of the time I'm open to giving their suggestion a go and seeing how it flies. After that process, if I don't think it'll make the film better, I try to describe to them why and get them on board with my vision. Vicky taught me the power of tent building. The more invested your partners are in the project, the more able you are to respond to challenges together. One example of this is with script development funding applications at the Film Commission. When I started doing them, I didn't want to highlight the problems with my script because I felt it would draw their attention to the flaws, which would then deny us funding. But if you see it, they see it. And being brutal with your script just makes them trust that you're going to tackle the big issues. Personally, I'm not interested in making films by second-guessing what the audience wants. I wouldn't even know how to do that. Who exactly are these people? I can only run creative decisions through what I would want to see. I have to be the audience for my film. I have to be the filter. My films will connect with an audience if my taste and execution matches their taste. And ironically, this personal style of filmmaking is actually what audiences want. International film festivals literally receive thousands upon thousands of films to choose their films from. Anyone who's attended these festivals can tell you the few films that are chosen are the bold, risky, personal, unique films, not the ones made trying to second-guess the market. The studio model of filmmaking is dying internationally, other than the few superhero films that come out of Hollywood each year, which are their own little weird thing. To stand out internationally, I believe we need to empower directors with trust and respect to express themselves personally. Changing tack a little bit here. Um, um, I, I, I wanted to just talk about this because it's, it's been a particular experience that we've had this year um, with Savage, and I, I, feel, I feel like it's something that we've lived with, but maybe lots of people haven't really seen or understood, so um, I just thought it was worth providing that context um, while we've got a large group of people here. Um, so, the, I mean, there's no doubt that if, if we're going to release a film in 2020, New Zealand was the place to do it. Um, but nevertheless, it was rather tricky, um, and so I'm just going to quickly talk about that now. Um, so we finished Savage in late 2019, and we were fortunate enough to bounce out of delivery and straight into two international festival selections at Busan and London BFI Film Festivals. And then we started planning for our New Zealand release in April 2020. Um, when COVID struck, all our release, New Zealand release plans went up in the air, and we moved our release date back to the end of October 2020 in the naive hope that by then things would be quite under control. Um, a complicating factor for us was that we had a, uh, we were really lucky, we had a UK theatrical di distributor, Vertigo, releasing. 
Um, but it meant that both our New Zealand and UK distributor were bouncing around on their release dates, trying to adapt and find the best opportunities within the challenging COVID landscape. That bouncing was driven by a combination of lockdowns in both countries, but also the big studio blockbusters, particularly Tenet, moving their dates constantly. Um, no one wants to release their film on the same day as a big studio blockbuster, so every time the studio picks moved, we did too. Our incredible distributor, Madman, and, and PR company, 818, were juggling not only Savage, but This Town and Baby Dunn's release plans, as well as a, as a more extensive slate of other films. So every time there was a COVID change, that was three New Zealand films, plus a bunch of others whose campaigns, cinema bookings, trailers, advertising, etc., were all having to be moved too. It was a really risky environment, um, and so we were you know, really lucky that we had a distributor who was prepared, nevertheless, to still back us 100%. We were always very committed to releasing the film in New Zealand for its home audience first. The UK situation is dire in terms of cinema attendance, cinema attendance and their ability to open, but with no studio blockbusters there, that, that created an opportunity for our, our relatively small New Zealand film to secure cinema screens in the UK that we wouldn't have able, been able to normally. So in August, when opportunities arose in the UK to go out theatrically on 100 screens, it put real pressure on us suddenly to move our New Zealand dates forward again. To cut a short, a, a, short, a long story, um, by the time we landed on our final release date for, of September the 10th, we'd had dates in April, October, dates in August, and two in September. So two weeks out from the release, um, we still didn't actually know if we could still release the film because Auckland cinemas weren't open. Auckland was still in its second lockdown. So because, the, because Auckland's such a significant part of the market, um, it made it questionable as to whether we could even go out. And then that Friday, um, the Prime Minister announced that Auckland cinemas could open for up to 100 people. And it was then that we rolled up our sleeves and said, right, let's go. Um, we had a whole community around us, our community who helped us make the film, you know, they, was, they were with us the whole time and um, they've been waiting for a long time for the film and, and we really felt that. And I, I got to a point where I'd actually stop, stopped updating everyone on our release date because it just didn't feel fair, especially to the community cast who aren't familiar with filmmaking and the release process. I was really worried that our extended cast of extras and supporting talent booking, uh, that they'd book flights to come to Wellington for their big premiere event, but then have to cancel it all and, and not be able to get the money back. And that to me felt like something that I really didn't want to happen. So in the end, we couldn't actually confirm that our actual premiere details until about a week out from um, the event itself. Cinemas were limited to 100 people, so on our premiere night, we had four back-to-back -back screenings in Wellington across two cinemas. And Sam and I ran around introducing the film at each screening. Um, again, Madman backed that idea, and off we went. Um, throughout this whole process, I was, I, I was a complete emotional wreck because it really felt like we'd get one great thing, like a big UK release, um, but then another thing would be compromised, like the dates for our New Zealand release. And it was, it was really gutting to lose control after eight years of work to get the film to this point. When I look back on lockdown, um, my favourite thing was uh, the enforced family time that we had together. And I think this, as a family in my household anyway, it enabled us to really see each other and value each other in a way that the buzz of everyday life can slowly steal away from you, kind of without you even realising it. This year in cinemas, in theatres and concert venues, our extended international family of studio blockbusters, international acts and artists have been locked out. And it's left behind a gap for local creators to step into with New Zealand work. I think there's a joy in that for people that has, that has been elevated by this experience. We're looking closer and harder at ourselves than we have for a while. And our art, culture and stories are a way to do that. It's very hard to be positive about film at a time when there's a global collapse in our distribution model. In America, the cinema chains have taken a massive hit that will change the distribution landscape forever. Worldwide audiences have tuned into platforms more than ever, and it's hard to know if we're ever going to get them back. But one thing that gives me hope, though, is the experience of releasing Savage in cinemas this year. It's really reminded me of the power of communal experiences 
and that that's what cinema ultimately offers. My favourite stories from the films, our film's release are from people who have commented on the impact of the film on others around them in the cinema when the film finished and the lights came up. One person told me about a man crying in front of her at the end of the film, and another said that they could hear people commenting on aspects of our history that they hadn't understood before. And that's just not something that you're ever going to get at home. It comes back to that sense of connection we have with each other when we laugh, when we cry, when we scream, and we feel together in the darkness of a room. It's about the unexpected discovery of connection to the dude who's two seats over and who also thinks it's funny. <laughs> or the watery-eyed, like I'm doing now, <laughs> or the watery-eyed glance at the woman behind you who you don't know, but who's weeping too. Maybe somebody else in the audience is as well. <laughs> It's the sense of connection, of community, of humanity, of transformation that we all share when we sit in a room to experiencing empathy together. Thank you. Okay, we'll go through some uh, questions. Um, first one, big hitter. How do you justify the cultural appropriation of brown experiences using the ignoble, savage trope to support the white protagonist's journey in this film? Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I guess, so the way I think about uh, culture in this film is um, my, my experience of meeting uh, gang members is multicultural. And the, the truth of the history of gang members is multicultural as well. Um, a lot of people don't realise the mongrel mob was formed by Pākehā. Um, the uh, gang scene in Auckland started uh, by Pākehā. Um, you know, Hells Angels and, and all the biker gangs up there. Even now, the Poirua gang, who this film... I'm not going to say it's modelled off, it's illegal. No, it's not. But... Um, was an inspiration for the savages, um, is a third Polynesian, a third Māori, and a third Pākehā. So the culture that I was attempting to delve into and, 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 the, and the, the, the culture that I um, who, who, um, asked, you know, I, I focused in on was gang culture, not Māori culture. Um, I made uh, the protagonist of the story Pākehā because I'm Pākehā and that felt a place of uh, more integrity to, to tell the story from and also because it was a more unique character we, you know, that we haven't seen before, the Pākehā gang member. So there were uh, Māori in the gang but that's because that's an honest depiction of the makeup of a gang, and um, specifically the makeup of, a, of for example, a Porirua gang. So um, not sure if that answers anything, but um, that's sort of the place that uh, I was coming on for uh, making the story. Cool. Okay, next question is, how have you collaborated with the real and diverse people who have lived through and experienced abuse and trauma. How did you work that into your creative, creative experience? Cool, so that's another good question. The, um, the, the collabor I think I talked a little bit about in the story, the, the collaboration, but um, to go into it a little bit more detail, it was um, meet, meeting gang members of different gangs, um, several different gangs um, and, and, and different chapters and uh, sitting in cars, in their house in uh, McDonald's, um, hearing uh, their life stories and also how gangs worked and as, as much information um, as I could. Oh, the question's gone. Is it? Oh, yes, no, here it is. Um, so, first of all, it was, it was listening, you know, just listening and, and hearing as, and taking in as much information as I can that, you know, that I could... and. Um, it was a really extensive process. It was over, you know, I, I wrote this over 10 years, so um, 
it was, you know, and I now know, you know, um, a lot of gang members and Count Summers' friends, and, yeah, it's a pretty extensive process. Um, uh, it's gone. Oh, have we got both these mics on? Yep. Is this, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we worked with um, members from the gang community and um, survivors um, the whole way through the process and um, counted that as a privilege and um, valued it. And, that, yeah, Sam said that meant listening and quite often stopping and um, taking the time to do that. Um, it meant seeking out and respecting people's feedback and um, adjusting where we needed to and thinking really hard as much as we could, wherever we could, to create safe spaces for people because that was one of the things that I was really aware of Particularly, you know, even things like bringing community cast into a filmmaking process, you have to stop and think about that. You can't just do it. You have to um, go, okay, here's a person who's never had this experience of making a film. What's that going to be for them? So it meant um, things like, you know, sitting down and, and really getting to know people, um, listening to their own stories in response to the work. It meant doing things like making sure that every single crew member had actually read the script so that they knew what we were making and they felt comfortable with that. And then on our own terms, being open to other pe people just not feeling like they could be a part of it. And we had that with a lot of people. Um, but we equally had as many people who really wanted to be part of the film because of what it's talking about. So it was a... It was a um, slow, careful process that we, we worked with always, I mean, a bit like Sebastian was talking about yesterday, it was always about really understanding how our value system and um, making sure that um, other people felt clear about what we were doing and um, supported that and wanted to be part of that. Um, I was quite anxious about the response of gaming members to the film. Um, so we decided to get a whole lot in a cinema together. Good way to find out. Um, and uh, so, and they, they were they were leaders um, in the in the mongrel mob, particularly. We we asked along, and um, yeah, their their response was really. Um, it is the reason I cared about it the most was because it's their story. Really, it's it's these these older guys who went through the gangs in the sixties and seventies, and you know. So it's that, yeah. And their response to the film was pretty amazing. Um, uh, they, what, their, one of the leaders got up and spoke afterwards and spoke to the authenticity of the story and the integrity of it and the values and the, just the sort of, I guess, the truth, the general truth of it, you know, and the way that resonated with them. And um, then uh, as, as a group, they basically went away and um, promoted a heart out on Facebook, so. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really, um, and, and, and we've, I've had that response from um, members from other gangs as well, and um, it's generally been um, a pretty, to be honest, a pretty incredible response to the film um, all, all around. So, yeah. Do I answer that one? It's the research of yeah. the person here. So um, this question is, abuse in state care is uh, part of New Zealand history that has been barely touched on in media. How did you go about researching this topic for your, for your film? Um, two, um, there was two, talk, talk, talking to some of these gang members who had those stories was um, a really personal and powerful way in um, and, you know, provided heaps of um, detailed um, stories that, you know, I was able to be inspired by. Um, there's also a couple of books that I'd recommend to anyone um, about, about this. Um, the Road to Hell by Elizabeth Stanley, which is an academic, um, basically, take on um, state care through New Zealand's history, and really powerful. Um, and effect, even though it's written in a quite a sort of a detached, emotional way, you can't help but just be overwhelmed by 
you know, the evidence and all the stories that are detailed in it. And then another more personal um, journey through uh, Puni Boys Home um, called Little Children, which is also um, well worth reading. Um, and, 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 and that's been one of the, you know, the, the, the thing that gets me a little bit is just when um, you talk to these gang members and there's this feeling of, you know, not their voices not being heard, that they'll talk about this with people and it'll be like, oh, shut up, you know, or just harden up or whatever. And it's this, this feeling of, like, listen, listen to me. I had this experience and just going out to the void. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that it really resonated with them, that this was made, that it was like, yes, this was, on, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's part of that. This happened. It's been... It's been um Yes, I mean, it's sort of been interesting because the response from the, you know, the people in power in a way, like the, the, the people who are inside the, the Royal Commission of Inquiry has been really interesting too because they've been really struggling with, um, you know, as you'd expect to get people to come forward and talk and share the, about their stories. Um, and, you know, um, it, it, what I hope, you know, is, is, some, is in the context of creating some conversation around the film itself, we might create some spaces for some of those men to, you know, find a place to decide if they do want to come forward. And, and, and actually the Royal Commission of Inquiry, they've, they've sort of actively been asking if they, if they can use the film for that purpose to try and get people to engage. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's sort of... I think what I, what I hope with the film is that it has... Um, quite a range of impacts across people inside and people outside, and, and maybe it will do that in ways that people, it's, it's quite hard to see. Maybe it will um, make a difference in some, some, you know, diverse places and smaller places that will, in the end, create some sort of transformation for some of those men. How do you think an international audience will react to Savage? Um, international went to London and Korea, um, and uh, yeah, it, it was actually you know, Korea is quite funny. You get people running up to you afterwards, wanting autographs and photos, and it's it's not you. It's just every every film they do that. It's it's really cool, um, but um, they yeah, there was a lot of. I mean, it's all you know. It we, seemed to go down really well. Yeah, we and Korea was really interesting because they're actually a really cinema literate audience yeah. and they were they were actually our first audience so that was kind of weird um, because it, it is such a sort of a culturally specific film but the um, I mean one of the things that that was really great for us is that we it, from the questions and the way that people talked about it afterwards they really understood what we were trying to do um, so that was really for us at that early very early stage of, of the film's public life. Um, to hear that, just even from an international audience, so... The Q&A is a really good way to understand how, you know, it's being perceived. Yeah, um, and, we, and, and London, um, of course, there's a big Kiwi contingent there, so that was, you know, the film, the film was um, very warmly received there. But we've, we've, it's been released um, in Australia as well, um, and it's going out in the States, and... Um, so, you know, people have responded to the work. It's, had, it's sort of, it's done reasonably well um, in terms of sales and so forth. Um, where did you and Mickey, Vicky meet and how did your, you develop your relationship? <laughs> um, well, That's I, a long story. <laughs> I, I, I stalked Vicky uh, after, you know, around the time of Lambs. I wanted her to uh, produce Lambs, but um, she said no. Said, I was busy. Me down. Yeah, <laughs> busy. I was making another feature film. Um, but yeah, so I, I knew I wanted to work with her, and then uh, yeah, I basically sent her a, a, a feature film script, um, which I think she was sort of interested in. And he didn't know that I'd actually been stalking him too. Gosh, so um, it's getting awkward. And, and <laughs> but he was um, Sam had a um, he he brought me I I sort of I was aware of Sam, and then he brought me the script for Lambs and. Um, I couldn't do the film, but I, I went and met with him and he talked about it to me. And just the way that he talked about what, what he was doing made me feel like, you know, he's a filmmaker. Um, and then when he made Lambs, um, it kind of was really apparent that, um, you know, he really, really was a filmmaker. Um, 
and um, yeah, and then we started working together from there. So, and it's it's as I think we said, it's been it's been an eight year ride through development and production. So it's been a long relationship. Um, but yeah, and we've you know um, we've been on such a journey with the film, and it's um, the stories we could tell you guys. <laughs> um. Um, in the spirit of nothing about us without us, um, did your gang member advisor have an above-the-line credit? No, he did not have an above-the-line credit. Um, Wayne Happy, uh, yeah, obviously, obviously had a credit and was deeply involved in the film. Um, yeah, maybe that's something, something to consider for the next film. Yeah, and, and and Wayne was a, a you know Wayne was with us right from um, he was he was one of the you spoke to him early in the process and then he, he kind of came back into the process to help us with some casting work and then um, he was one of the early people that we showed the film to um, when it was in the edit process um, and he's been you know um, a big part of of, you know, walking alongside us along the journey of the film, for sure. Savage is a brilliant title that helped sell the film. Did you come up with that early or late in the process? Care to share other title ideas? So, the idea is Savage. I mean, um, well, first of all, the, 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 the gang, um, you know, the mongrel mob was... The story goes that they, it came from um, being called a pack of mongrels by a judge and then embracing the title and being really anti-society. And so... You know, the, the, the savage thing was sort of a similar sort of feel where perhaps they were called savages by someone from authority and they were like, fuck you, we are savages. Um, but it was also obviously ironic, you know, that, that it sets up this idea of judging someone from the outside and then the entire film tries to subvert that by going through and, and, and humanising, you know, this, this character. So um, it was early, it was right, right from the start, I think that it was called Savage. Yeah. Mm. It's been it's been quite an interesting journey on in terms of the like how to position the film as well. So I mean the trailer that we cut um, and released um, first is quite um, it was it sort of in a way was quite consciously cut as a sort of almost a genre film um, because you know it, it was it was in a way a little bit subversive because it was kind of what we anticipated people might respond to even though we were aiming to give them much more than a genre film. And, and that's a little bit what that image that you have seen of Jake, um, that sort of became the brand of the film. That was a lot of what that was about too. I mean, it not only talked to kind of the intentions, but it also kind of was captivating and um, it kind of drew people to it because they kind of, they, they felt like they knew what they were getting and what they were signing up for, which is a bit of a trick of marketing. And a little bit of what we were hoping is that we might surprise a few people. And we had a lot of that from um, particularly women um, who saw the promotion or material and really consistently felt cautious, and quite naturally, I would have felt myself quite cautious about um, engaging with the film because, what they were, because of what they were potentially signing up for. But then, reasonably, inevitably, would go and see the film and find it affecting in ways that they hadn't expected um, and uh, validate it. So we, we sort of hoped that would be what would happen, but, and it actually did. It was because it was, it's not a film that you'd say is a 50-plus female audience. But that was actually quite a significant part of our audience um, because um, people were quite surprised by it. So that it was it, as a kind of a film to position, it was quite a trick. And we had um, two trailers that we cut sort of with that in mind. Um, so we had the, the, the mainstream trailer, but then we had an art house trailer which focused much more towards the interior life of the main character in an attempt to try and position it towards the female audience but um, that um, you know I, th I think that in a way that there was sort of there was always a hurdle with um, particularly that older female crowd to get them to tune into the film because it's quite a natural not not going to go and see it um, 
But our word of mouth, I think, was what um, converted a lot of people to, to go and seek it out in the end. Um, this is maybe my favourite question. Why are there no chairs for you on stage? <laughs> I like that they got five votes as well. That's great. Um, the sound design is amazing. Can you talk about that? So we'd love to. Um, so the sound design was Nick um, Buckton, who um, I can't talk about highly enough. Um, a real artist. Um, and he actually is the one that turned me on to Ali, the composer. Um, and the real lovely thing about this film, the post-production, um, was the way those two work together. Um, if you're lucky enough to have that, where your sound designer and composer actually like each other, and they were working side by side in rooms, where they were able to walk into each other's room, see what was happening on a sonic level and make sure nothing's competing and that each, each other is giving each other space for the music and the sound design. I wouldn't want to work any other way from now on. It was so important. It meant that you don't get to the mix and you're then solving all of these problems of competing, you know, where they, music and the sound is doing exactly the same thing and you're having to make these harder choices. When we went into the mix at Park Road Post, which was awesome, um, it was so already sorted, the sound design, in terms of like, you know, the, the mix that we almost, we did it um, native was, was almost, you know, it was amazing temp mix. And um, so Nick worked, um, I, I, I sort of really talked about the feeling of each scene and it was, it was really important for me to find those internal spaces for each scene. It was like, it wasn't a, um, a literal sound design, it was subjective, it was trying to find what the feeling is and then try and create that through the sound of the wind, you know, whether it's a lonely or a harsh or a aggressive or, you know, and every single element right through um, would be working to create that feeling. And um, listening to it, um, you know, particularly if you listen to it in an amazing sound theatre, it really is a work of art. I'm super proud of it. Who, uh, where to from here? Are you planning on telling any more stories? About, uh, um, so yeah, this question's where to from here? Are you planning on telling any more stories about gang culture? Perhaps, don't know, thinking about it. Um, don't know why I answered that question, it's a bit unnecessary. Do we have an impact producer attached to Savage? Um, no, but we did work with 818, who are incredible. So um, we were lucky because we had a bigger, a feature film, we had that partnership with Mad Men that then offers the publicity partnership. So um, we were really well supported there. Do you want to talk about the edit? Mm, Is that a long conversation? <laughs> long conversation. <laughs> um, where do you see yourself in three years' time, Sam? Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> um, We've got a minute left. There's a counter. Um, I think we've done yeah. pretty well. Um, so we, should we maybe wrap yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for uh, coming along. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and thank you. Um, I just want to take the opportunity to thank... Um, I, I know that there's quite a few people in the room who have been part of our journey and supported us. The Film Commissioner here. Um, even my mate, Juliet Weber's here. Um, I think Ash might be here. There's a few people in the room that have supported us along the way. So thank, And Mad Men, I think, are here. Um, so thank you so much for, I just want to acknowledge that support that you've given us um, to make the film. And um, yeah, I just hope that we can keep making some really bold films because I think we need them. And um, yeah, let's, let's do some more of that. The Big Screen Symposium 2020 was brought to you by Script to Screen and J&A Productions. We gratefully thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Te Mangai Paho, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and AUT. Voiceover is by me, La Lena Faunati, and music by Poddington Bear. 